0: Hello, and welcome to Musings on History, episode 9.7, Ancient African Societies. And welcome back to Musings on History. Today's episode will be looking more in-depth into the cultures and societies of pre-colonial Africa, including relationships like marriage, parents and children, class stratifications, the role of religion, gender politics, and pre-colonial African slavery. I'll also be discussing pre-colonial African warfare and intercontinental politics. Chapter 1, Family is the Foundation. The family, as we all know, is the key to human evolution. Grouping together in clans and forming familial bonds that extend beyond just mother and child have always been instrumental in preserving uh, mammal species, especially primates, like human beings. In Africa, as with anywhere else, the way that these families form has as much to do with the environment that the people live in as it does things like their religion. It's pretty well known that there have always been matriarchal and matrilocal societies in Africa, both pre- and post-colonial period. Matrilineal means kinship is passed down through the maternal line, whereas matrilocal means new families are established in proximity to the bride's extended family of origin, not that of the groom. Most ancient civilizations stressed the importance of family, and this was evident in the stories of their gods and heroes. In most African pantheons, the gods were related to one another through blood or marriage. And through the study of these pantheons, some ancient African ideas about family began to take shape. For instance, in the Yoruba Pantheon, the Orisha Shango had three wives, Oshun, Oya, and Oba. Shango was a legendary alafin or king of the Oyo empire and he was deified after his death and in life he likely had three or more wives who were also deified after his death like the Roman Emperor Augustus and his wife Libya Augusta. Also in episode 9.5 I think it was I said that the Orisha that corresponded with the Scorpio astrological sign was Yamaya and it's actually Oya. The godly pantheon I'm sorry, the godly polygamy in the Yoruba pantheon reflected the actual polygamy that was being practiced by the Yoruba people in the Oyo uh, Empire. For Shango, his three wives each had different roles. Oya, which was the orisha of winds, lightning, and violent storms, death, and rebirth. Uh Oya was an unbeatable warrior and the patroness of the Niger River but she's also known as the mother of nine meaning she had nine stillborn children. Oya and Shango also uh, had no children but despite this she's still revered by him and serves a very important purpose as his right hand in battle and the patron of the incredibly important Niger River whose floodplains provided the Yoruba people with nutrient-rich soil and water for fishing and drinking and irrigation. In ancient Egypt, the language reflected the family structure of the Nile, Nile, Nile River Valley civilization. Sorry, Demotic Egyptian used the same words for mother as they did for grandmother and sister and aunt were also the same word. Similarly, father and grandfather were the same word, as were uncle and brother. And the word sister was often used in place of wife, although not in the Cersei and Jaime Lannister kind of way. The eldest son in Egyptian families was responsible for all the women in his family once his father died. And if he was unmarried, then his sister took care of his household. Like if there were guests, then she would, you know, be responsible for planning the party, managing his household slaves, if he had any and just, you know, doing everything that wives do except for the other stuff. Unlike in the Oyo empire where polygamy was widespread across class lines, in ancient Egypt, most people aside from the royal family were in monogamous marriages. Marriage was largely a social arrangement that regulated property. Neither religious nor state doctrines entered into the marriage. And unlike other documents that related to economic matters, such as the so-called marriage contracts, marriages themselves were not registered. Apparently, once a couple started living together, they were acknowledged as married. As related in the story of Setny, I was taken as a wife to the house of Nanaferkata. Nanaferkata. Okay. He was the pharaoh. That night, he sent me a present of silver and gold. He slept with me that night and found me pleasing. He slept with me again and again and again, and we loved each other. And that is from a stele of Likthim, which was transcribed in 1980. The ancient Egyptian terms for marriage, which meant many to moor a boat and gripe to found a house, convey the sense that the arrangement was about property. Texts indicate that the groom often gave the bride's family a gift, and he also gave his wife presents. Legal texts indicate that each spouse maintained control of their own property that they brought into the marriage, while other property acquired during the union was jointly held. Ideally, the new couple lived in their own house, but if that was impossible, they would live with one of their parents. Although the institution of marriage was taken seriously, divorce was not uncommon. Either partner could institute divorce for fault, like adultery, inability to conceive, or abuse, or no fault, which would just be like general incompatibility. Divorce was no doubt a matter of disappointment, but it was not one of disgrace, and it was very common for divorced people to remarry. Chapter 2, The Status of Women, Children, and LGBTQ in Pre-Colonial Africa. The Egyptians appear to have reversed the ordinary practices of mankind, Women attend markets and are employed in trade while men stay at home and do the weaving. Men in Egypt carry loads on their heads, women on their shoulders. Women pass water standing up while men do it sitting down. To ease themselves, they go indoors, but they eat outside on the streets on the theory that what is unseemly but necessary should be done in private and what is not unseemly should be done openly. That is from the writings of uh, the Greek historian Herodotus. So Egyptian women had greater freedom of choice and more equality under social and civil law than their contemporaries in Mesopotamia or even the women of the later Greek and Roman civilizations. A woman's right to initiate divorce was one of the ways in which her full legal rights were manifested. Additionally, women could serve on juries, testify in trials, inherit real estate, and disinherit their male and female children. Class played an important part in determining female occupations in ancient Egypt. Peasant women worked side by side with the men in the field, but in higher levels of society, gender roles were more entrenched and women were more likely to remain at home while their husbands plied their crafts or worked at civil service jobs. And back to the Herodotus statement about like women go outside and are employed in trade while men stay home and do the weaving. So agriculture was seen as the providence of women because women are fertile and there's evidence of widespread, especially in pre-Pharaonic Egypt, where they had the different gnomes of soil fertility rituals where the women would use their um, menstrual blood to keep the soil uh, strong. And it was kind of like a sacrifice to a Nile River goddess that... I don't think made it into the later Egyptian pantheon. But that's the reason why women were in the fields, because other trades like that you use with your hands, like carving in wood or in stone, weaving, making papyrus, things like that, those paid more than being a you know lady in a market selling cabbages or whatever. And so because those trades paid more, of course, the men took them on. Through most of the Pharaonic period, men and women inherited equally and from each parent separately. Of course, this changed when the Macedonian Ptolemy came to power because they were influenced by Greek society where women were kept cloistered and not really allowed to do anything but give birth. The eldest son often, but not always, inherited his father's job and position, whether in a workshop or a temple but to him also fell the onerous and costly responsibility of his parents' proper burial. And an Egyptian burial could go on for months. Real estate generally was not divided among heirs, but was held jointly by the family members. If a family member wished to leave property to a person other than the expected heirs, a document called an imyat pair, that which is in the house, would ensure the wishes of the deceased. In Egyptian households of all classes, children of both sexes were valued and wanted as there is no indication that female infanticide was ever practiced. In addition to fertility tests, tests for pregnancy and the determination of the gender of the child were also devised. One test involved watering barley and emmer with the urine of a hopeful mother-to-be. If the barley sprouted, the woman was pregnant with a male child. If the emmer wheat germinated, she was pregnant with a female child. If the urine had no effect, the woman was not pregnant. Now although there may be some scientific basis for this test, a pregnant woman does produce a variety of hormones, some of which can induce early flowering in particular plants, there's no known relationship between these plants and the determination of gender. So maybe they didn't always get it right with the germination and the sprouting, but peeing on barley is one way to find out if you're pregnant. And that's cool that the uh, ancient Egyptians were aware of that. And that's probably another reason why agriculture was generally considered the provenance of women. Our pregnant pee makes the plants grow. (laughs) Data collected from modern non-industrial societies suggests that infant mortality in ancient Egypt was undoubtedly high. One of the best ways to maintain a healthy infant under the less than perfect conditions that prevailed in ancient times was through breastfeeding. Something else the ancient Egyptians knew and then I guess everybody forgot and like now everybody remembers, oh yeah, breast is best. It's kind of like, we're not really progressing. We're just relearning the same stuff over and over and over again. In addition to the transfer of antibodies through mother's milk, breastfeeding also offered protection from foodborne diseases. Gastrointestinal disorders are common under poor sanitary conditions because infant immunity is reduced during weaning, children's susceptibility to disease increases at this time. That's another reason why in all across Africa, uh, children were generally breastfed for, uh, for at least two to three years. Indirect evidence for this occurring in ancient Egypt comes from a number of cemeteries where the childhood death rate peaks at about age four, which correlates with an Egyptian child's introduction to solid foods. Prolonged lactation also offered a number of health advantages to the mother. Primarily, it reduces the chance of conceiving another child too soon by hormonally suppressing ovulation, which allows the mother more time between pregnancies. The three-year period for suckling a child recommended in the instructions of Ani, which uh, was published in the New Kingdom, therefore struck an unconscious but evolutionarily important balance between the needs of procreation, the health of the mother, and the survival of the newborn child. So New Kingdom Egypt was more progressive than 21st century United States when it came to uh, the rights of women to give or not give birth. (laughs) Who would have thought? Egyptian children who successfully completed their fifth year could generally look forward to a full life in which Peasant society was about 35 years for men and 29 years for women, based on skeletal evidence. Textual records indicate that for upper-class males who were generally better fed and performed less strenuous labor than the lower classes, life expectancy could reach well into the 60s and 70s and sometimes even the 80s and 90s. Upper-class women also look forward to a longer life than women from the lower classes, but the arduous task of bearing many children resulted in a lower life expectancy compared to their male counterparts. Dolls and toys indicate that children were allowed ample time to play, but once they matured past infancy, uh, like were weaned, they began training for adulthood. Young girls assisted their mothers with household tasks or worked with them in some capacity in the fields. Other female members of the mother's household would aid in the care of younger siblings. Similarly, young boys followed their fathers into their occupations, first carrying out simple chores, then leading and working and carrying out more important tasks. Parents also familiarize their children with ideas about the world, their religious outlook, their ethical principles, and correct behavior. The end of childhood appears to have been marked by the onset of menzies for girls and the ceremony of circumcision for boys. That circumcision was a ritual transition from boyhood to manhood is indicated by references such as when I was a boy before my foreskin was removed from me. As far as it's known, in the pharaonic period, only males were circumcised, but exactly how prevalent this was throughout society is unclear. Some uncircumcised mummies, including King Amos and perhaps King Amenhotep I, indicate that the practice may not have been universal. And this is largely because not all of the dynasties were ethnic or like indigenous Egyptian dynasties. You had The 27th, 28th, and 29th dynasties that were Libyan. You had the, I want to say, 14th, 15th, and 16th dynasties that were Hittite. Then you had the Ptolemaic dynasties, uh, which came from Macedonia. So maybe it was a matter of like who was running things. The kingdom is possible because of the queen. The king is the sign while the queen is the symbol and this was from Warren Blakely. Nubia is an area of scholarship that was largely overlooked for a long time in favor of Egypt. Past finds in the area of Nubia were attributed to Egypt and current excavation of the area is impossible because of Egypt's construction of the High Aswan Dam. However, renewed interest in Africa brought on largely by Afrocentric scholars such as Cheikh Antidiya has resulted in a proliferation of scholarly work on ancient Nubia. Much of the scholarly work up to this point is dealing with the massive archeological digs that occurred just prior to the building of the High Aswan Dam. As a result of this, the amount of available information on Nubia has increased immeasurably. Evidence has emerged that shows a people who, after decades of colonization by the Egyptians, rose above and established themselves as a force to be dealt with in East Africa. Nubians developed a culture and people that were distinctly different from Egyptians. After preliminary investigation into the uh, the area of ancient Nubia, a striking contrast emerges. The Nubians had an unusually high number of ruling queens, especially during the golden age of Meroitic Kingdom. Although ruling queens in themselves, in and of themselves, are not unusual, the portrayal of Nubian queens is exceptional for the area. A panel on display at the exhibit Nubia, Egypt's rival in Africa, which is, I think, currently showing at that new museum in Cairo, uh, showed the queen smiting her enemies, not helping someone smite her enemies, but she's like the war leader herself. This type of representation has no equivalent in either Egyptian or Western art. This unusual find has led to further research in the role of the women in Nubian society, both past and present. The result has been a surprising contrast between the more docile Nubian woman of today and the warrior Queens of ancient times. Upon closer examination of the history and culture of Nubia, it becomes apparent that women played a very important role. Unlike the rest of the world or at that time, women in Nubia exercised significant autonomous control in the Nubian Valley. Worship of the queen of all goddesses, Isis, was paramount. Isis was kind of like an import that they made their own from Egypt. From the capital of Meroe, warrior queens fought for the interests of the Nubian Kushite empire. Throughout history, women were portrayed in Nubian art as the bearers of the offspring of the gods. Throughout Egypt and Nubia, the cult of Isis had a tremendous and devoted following. Isis was not only the Egyptian goddess of magical powers, she was the representation of the queen mother. In the most famous fable of the period isis roams the world in search of the corpse of her husband osiris she returns osiris to his rightful resting place only to have osiris's evil brother set cut him to pieces and scatter him throughout the land isis then takes her son horus and sets out to find every piece of the corpse so she may tenderly bury it in the hopes that she can resurrect him again she's successful and osiris becomes the god of the underworld although isis osiris and horus are then established as a trinity Isis immediately becomes the most popular of the three. Hint, 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 Trinity, hint, hint, hint. That was another thing that was imported into Christianity. This can be partially attributed to her role as the devoted, untiring, nurturer of the land and culture of Egypt and Nubia. The cult of Isis was the strongest religion in Nubia. In contrast, the Egyptians worship Ra in larger numbers. Ray was the god of the sun and distinctly male at that. The worship of Isis began with the Meroitic period and extended into the X-group period. And as the cult of Isis got larger in Nubia, depictions of Rey's phallus also got larger in Egyptian art. Like they were trying to say, yeah, you may have Isis as this warrior goddess in representation of Mero- Mero- Meroitic and Nubian culture, but look how big Ray's penis is. Men are so stupid. Many Nubian rulers of the time were pictured with Isis on their crowns, male and female. This was considered an homage to her role as queen of all gods, goddesses, and women. Since the ruler was considered to be born of the gods, it was only natural that the mother should be paid such a tribute. Perhaps as a result of the strong influence of women figures in religion, Nubia and its Kushite rulers gave way to a number of strong queens throughout its history. Ten sovereign ruling queens are recognized from this period. Additionally, six other queens who ruled with their husbands were considered significant to the history of Nubia. Many of these rulers were immortalized in statuary. It was unheard of for non-ruling queens or princesses to be immortalized in art. These queens were often portrayed as being very round. And uh, this was part of the queen mother model. And these queens were called both gore, meaning ruler, and kandake, meaning queen mother. And kandake has been corrupted into the English form Candace. The emergence of the queen as a viable player in the politics of the day has its roots in the earliest Kushite tradition. Kushite rulers married and then passed more royal power into the hands of the queen. The perfect example of the expanded powers of the queen is Kushite queen Amarenus. Amani Reynas, sorry. In 24 BC, she was threatened by the Roman Empire. Egypt was under the subjugation of Rome and the frontier of the Kushite Nubian Empire was uh, 70 miles south of Syene, which was a Roman uh, fort. The Nubians were constantly raiding their Egyptian neighbors. And on one of these journeys, Amani Reynas went along. When confronted, she led armies into battle and defeated three Roman cohorts. In addition, the Candace defaced a statue of Emperor Augustus and brought the head back to Nubia as a prize, which was then buried in the doorway of a very important temple as a final act of disrespect. I like her. She also had one eye. Maybe I'll be her for Halloween. Furthermore, these queens of the Nubian Kushite empire were given the special distinction of assuming a priestly role in the divine succession of kings. In other societies of the period, the divine right of the king passed from God to ruler, and there was really no room for a maternal figure. However, Nubian queens are often portrayed at the the event of the divine birth. A fine example of this is the representation of queen, oh, here we go, Aminishiketo, appearing before Amun. The queen is pictured with a goddess, possibly Hathor, the goddess of fertility, and is wearing a panther skin. This signifies her priestly role in the birth of the successor to the throne. This piece is one of a series. In the first, the queen is elected by god. This establishes her position as rightful ruler. Soon after, the divine child is conceived out of a meeting between the god and the queen. And then finally, the child and heir to the empire is delivered to the queen by the god. This complex and important role does not seem to have had an equivalent in other neighboring cultures. Also at this time, the queen is beginning to be represented in royal art with a cowrie shell. This shell was often used as currency and uh, in trade. In art, the shell was thought to symbolize the vulva and by extension, verbal communication. Pussy talk indeed. The use of the cowrie shell, either real or representative was reserved only for women and their ornaments. A possible explanation for this could be that women were allowed to speak freely and often. In any case, it shows that the artisans of the period connected the art of verbal communication with the ruling queens and other influential women of the period. Dr. Chikante Diop in his book Pre-Colonial Black Africa explained that the African custom of matrilineal succession, very strict rules were observed. The heir to the throne was not the king's son, but the son of the king's firstborn sister, which would be the king's nephew. Because, it, as it said, you can never be sure who the father is, but the mother you can always be sure—mama's baby, daddy's maybe. In his In Black Africa, which was published uh, in 1987, Diop explains that African bicameralism, a type of governance that several pre-colonial African societies used to rule especially in West Africa, women in these societies, bicameral societies, had a position and influence where they participated in the running of public affairs within the framework of the woman's assembly. This assembly sat separately from the man's assembly, but the two shared influence and power. The popular resistance of the Dahomey and Yoruba kingdoms in Benin and Nigeria were largely a result of the organizing and fighting efforts of the women's assemblies. And the Dahomey warrior women were all members of the kingdom of Dahomey's military tribunal who advised the kingdom in matters of war and diplomacy. The inverse of this would be in pre-Roman Britannia, where these, in the Celtic uh, tribal confederations, You usually had a queen who managed all matters of peace and diplomacy. And then you had the king who was chosen by the queen. He wasn't always her husband. Chosen by the queen and he took over in matters of war. And then he either died in the attempt or he had to sacrifice himself because he lost. African bicameralism though, allowed the blossoming of both male and female and allowed the full use of both the feminine and masculine mind. According to Ivor Wilkes, who describes 16th century African history as an era of great his, characterized by an egalitarian social structure. I calling it egalitarian, I think it's a little bit of a stretch. It's a bit of a stretch. According to C. McBailey File in 1999, although men dominated politics in Africa in the pre-colonial period, there were quite a few women who played an active role in politics and government as well. As mentioned earlier, the queen mother and the king's sister were important politically and wielded a range of powers and authority, especially in military matters. Among the Sotho of Southern Africa, the daughters of sub-rulers were heads of female-only military regiments. During the reign of Shaka Zulu, whose name is actually Shaka Ka Ooh, sorry, y'all. God knows my heart. Shaka Zulu, his aunt Kabai and his mother, Queen Mother Nandi, were put in charge of military crawls and given power to govern while Shaka Zulu was on campaign. In Niger and Chad, Women led the migration caravans. They formed cities and conquered kingdoms such as Queen Amina of Katsina and the Songhai people. Queen Amina of Katsina of the Songhai people. Say that three times fast. In Yoruba political culture, there was the Iolode, who was a member of the Alafin's Council in the judiciary body. I've noticed that in these pre-colonial African societies, women are either fertility goddesses, war goddesses, or justice goddesses and not even just goddesses but like that 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 was our main theme grow the food have the babies preside preside over justice and preside over war basically all the important stuff the iolode was a female representative who was responsible for women's issues and was their spokeswoman at the alafans meetings in sierra leone among the mende and sherbro people by the 19th century, women could be heads of towns and sub-regions. Bring that back. In June, 2020, Botswana overturned colonial era laws, which criminalized homosexuality with the judge, Michael Laburu declaring that the anti-sodomy laws are a British import and were developed without the consultation of local peoples. And that's absolutely right. It was viewed as a massive success in a historic moment across the continent. And it does have historic precedent. Prior to European colonization, more relaxed attitudes towards sexual orientation and gender identity could be found throughout the African continent. As far back as 2400 BC, tombs have been excavated in ancient Egypt with two men's bodies, Nia and Kunimhotep, embracing one another as lovers. And there were also like inscriptions in, e- in ancient Egyptian language, hieroglyphs, saying that they were lovers. So there's, you know, what, two ways about it. They were lovers. In addition to their acceptance of same-sex relationships, ancient Egyptians, similar to other civilizations at the time, not only acknowledged third genders, but venerated them. Many deities were portrayed androgynously and goddesses such as Mut, the goddess of motherhood, and Sekhmet, the goddess of war, are often depicted as women with erect penises, especially Sekhmet. Hers got bigger as Nubia's goddesses got more popular. Just like Bray. And she's like closely tied to Amun-Re. So I get it. Okay. This was not unique to Egypt or this time period though. In the 16th century, that's the 1500s, the Mbongala people of Angola had men in women's apparel with whom they kept amongst their wives. In Uganda, there was an openly gay monarch, King Mwanga II of Buganda, who actively opposed Christianity and colonialism. The Igbo and Yoruba tribes of present-day Nigeria did not have a binary of genders in their language and typically did not assign gender to babies at birth, preferring instead to wait until the child was older and had begun to exhibit traits of masculinity, femininity, or both. Regardless of what gender a child was assigned or a person was assigned, there was still a place for them in these societies. And third-gender people were often craftspeople, priests, and artists. Similarly, the the Dagaba people of present-day Ghana assigned gender not based on one's anatomy, but rather the energy that they presented. And in the royal palaces of northern Sudan, daughters were sometimes given slave girls for sex, since they viewed sex as a very natural act that was pleasing, regardless of what genders were doing it. But they wanted to make sure that the royal daughters didn't get pregnant before they could be married off. And the only way that could happen is if they had sex with men. So here, have a girl. Okay. In the Northern part of Nigeria, yandadu is a Haza term to describe effeminate men who are considered to be wives to men. While the Yoruba word might be more about behavior than identity. I'm sorry, the Haza word. While the Haza word might be more about behavior. No, wait. There is a Yoruba term that's similar, but it's more about behavior than self-identity the haza term is more about self-identity you have to look and act like a yandadu to be called one it's not just an identity that you can carry but the words are neutral and they're not used with hate or disgust being called yandadu is not a slur it's just like this is this is what you are right In Boy Wives and Female Husbands, a book that examines homosexuality and feminism in Africa, the researchers found explicit Bushman artwork that depicts men engaging in same-sex sexual activity. There have been other indicators that the transition from boyhood to adulthood within many African ethnic groups involves same-sex activities. And this is very, very prevalent, like, well into, like, the... 1500s, Suleiman the Magnificent was gay. His lover's name was Ibrahim. And there are texts from that time, which is like 1580s, where uh, Suleiman, he had three children by Huram, Sultana Huram, and he writes to one of his sons that like, women are for, women are generally for like, having kids, and men are for pleasure, but, you know, since I'm Suleiman the Magnificent, I fell in love with both a man and a woman. But you're not me, though. So you need to do things differently. Anyway, back to Africa. There was a religious leadership role called the Mugawe among the Meru people of Kenya. They wore clothes typically made for women and rocked feminine hairstyles. Mugawe, it's still a thing. They don't really have the religious aspect to their uh, identity anymore but they are frequently homosexuals and are sometimes married to men. The Male of Southern Ethiopia also have records of a small minority of men crossing over into feminine roles. Called Ashtime, they dressed like women, performed female tasks, cared for their own houses, and sometimes had sexual relations with men. Historically, several African cultures believe that gender was not really dependent upon the anatomy, but was more about the energy, so it was gender presentation rather than uh, bio-determinism. The Dogon of Mali reportedly traditionally worshipped ancestral teachers who were described as intersex and mystical. Androgynous deities like Esu Elegba, the Yoruba god or goddess of the crosswords, crossroads rather, or Maulisa, the Dahomey creator god or goddess because they don't have a set gender. It's kind of like the Nordic Loki, but in West African form, and they can be viewed through a contemporary lens as possible patrons for the LGBTQ plus community, despite being historically demonized from the 19th century onward. Many ancient matriarchal structures in Africa practiced female husbandry where women had wives. And assumed economic responsibility over the children, much like an ogre or like the headman would. Chapter three Class and Political Structures of Ancient Africa City States, Kingdoms, Empire. The Belgian historian Jan Vassina, in his 1966 book, Kingdoms of the Savannah discusses the classification of sub-Saharan African kingdoms, mostly of Central, South, and East Africa, with some additional data on West African Sahelian kingdoms, distinguishing five types by their increasing or decreasing centralization of power. The first type is the despotic kingdom, where the king controls the internal and external affairs directly. Examples of despotic African kingdoms are Rwanda, Ikore, Soga, and Congo in the 16th century. Then you have regal kingdoms, where the king controls the external affairs directly and the internal affairs via a system of overseers. The king and his chiefs belong to the same clans or lineages. Next are incorporative kingdoms, where the king controls only external affairs with no permanent administrative links between him and the chiefs of the provinces, and the hereditary chiefdoms of the provinces were left undisturbed after conquest. Examples of these are the Bamaleke, Lunda, Luba, and Lozi kingdoms. Then there are the aristocratic kingdoms where the only link between central authority and the provinces is the payment of tribute. These kingdoms are morphologically intermediate between regal and federations. This type is most common in Africa, with most of the other types having been this type at one time, including the Congo of the 17th century, the Kazembe, Luapula, Cuba, Ngonde, Mlange, Ha, Zenza, and Chaga states of the 18th century. Lastly are the federation states such as the Ashanti Union, where external affairs are regulated by a council of elders headed by the king who is simply primus inter pares or first among men. The Kingdom of Benin, also known as the Edo Kingdom or the Benin Empire, was a kingdom within what is now Southern Nigeria. Interestingly, it has no historical relation to the modern day Republic of Benin, which was known as Dahomey from the 17th century until 1975. So now I gotta go find out why is Benin, the, the country called Benin when it was Dahomey and the kingdom of Benin was north of it. The kingdom of Benin's capital was Ido, now known as Benin city in Edo state Nigeria. And yes, Ido in Japan and Edo in Benin are sister cities. The Benin Kingdom was one of the oldest and most developed states in the coastal hinterland of West Africa, and it grew out of the previous Edo kingdom of Igodomigodo. okay, yeah, around the 11th century AD, and lasted until it was annexed by the British Empire in 1897. The Kingdom of Benin was renowned for its architecture, The impluvium was used in Benin architecture to store rainwater. And among the residences of the nobility, a compluvium channeled the rainwater into the impluvium in order to permit light and air through the walls, since windows were absent among these structures. The stored rainwater in the impluvium was discharged out of the house through a drainage system beneath the floor. So it was very similar to how uh, high-class homes in ancient Rome had like an abundance of fresh running water. Same system, basically. Which is why they call it by its Latin name. Archaeological works from the mid-20th century have revealed the existence of edge-laid pot-shared pavements in Benin City, dated around or prior to the 14th century. Benin City was the first city in the world to have street lamps and... Um, yeah. First city in the world to have street lamps. And there are Dutch and English and Portuguese historical records showing that they were just amazed not only by like the street lamps. This is the 1400s. Europe is still in darkness mostly. And Benin City has like street lamps everywhere in all segments of society. And Benin City was like a terrorist kind of city with... The it was a terror city, it was kind of like Ba Sing Se, if you've watched uh Avatar The Last Airbender, where you have the inner rings and the outer rings, and the most important people lived in the out in the inner rings, and then the poorer people lived on the outer rings because it was understood that if they were attacked, then you know the poor people would die first. But it was also a terrorist city, and so you had like gardens equivalent maybe even to like the hanging gardens of Babylon kind of thing that would hang. And because there weren't a lot of windows, like I said, since most homes were built into the earthenworks, into the many, many walls of Benin City, they had that system where air could circulate through the walls, which was like proto air conditioning, basically. And so that's why when people say that like, you know there needs to be more development than Africa. Africa had development. It had plenty of development. Africa doesn't need Western development because Africa has a different landscape. It has a different climate. It has different, you know, indigenous soil, trees, everything. It's just very different. Maybe they need to build their homes a certain way in Europe, but in West Africa, they don't need to do that. And the mud brick way, was obviously the best way because all over the continent that's what people use whether they had trees or not. So go back to what you know. Now the walls of Benin are a series of earthworks like I said they're made up of banks and ditches called the iya in the Edo language in the area around present-day Benin City. Present-day Benin City don't even look as good as it did before. Go back to what you know. They consist of about nine miles of city Iya and an estimated 900, uh, I'm sorry, 9,900 miles in the rural area about around Benin. Now I have to go there. Benin is so fascinating to me. Not only do I need to see the walls of Benin, they have a whole temple of snakes because in pre-colonial society, there was like a religious sect that was devoted to snakes and I love snakes and I just, I need to go there. Some estimates suggest that the walls of Benin may have been constructed between the 13th and mid 15th century CE. And some suggest that the walls of religion in the Isan region may have been constructed during the first millennium AD. At its height, Benin dominated trade along the entire coastline from the Western Niger Delta through Lagos to the kingdom of Great Accra, which is in modern-day Ghana. It was for this reason that the coastline was named the Bight of Benin. In its expansionist period, Benin ruled over the tribes of the Niger Delta, including the Western Igbo, Igbo, Ijaw, Itsakiri, Ika, Isoko, and Urhobo, amongst others. It also held sway over the Eastern Yoruba tribes of Ando, Akiti, Mahin, Ugbo, and Ijebu. It also conquered what became the city of Lagos hundreds of years before the British took it over in 1861. Lagos was a Yoruba uh, city. The Jalof Empire, also known as the Wolof or Wolof Empire, was a West African state that ruled over parts of modern-day Senegal from 1350 to 1549. Following the 1549 Battle of Donkey, its vassalist uh, states were fully or de facto dependent. In this period, it is simply known as the Jolof Kingdom. The state of Jolof, named for the central province where the king resided, was a vassal of the Mali Empire for much of its early history. Jolof remained within that empire's sphere of influence until the latter half of the 14th century. During a succession dispute in 1360 between two rival lineages within the Mali Empire's royal bloodline, the Jollof people took advantage of the internal divisions in the Mali Empire and became permanent in the independent. So when you see the online banter between Guyanians and Nigerians over whose Jollof is best, you, you will always see a Senegalese person like, "It's that's not even your dish, it's ours. And as someone who has had Guyanian Jollof and Nigerian Jollof and has Senegalese Jollof Uh, two years ago for my birthday or last year, rather, for my birthday. Yeah, Senegalese Jollof is shitting on everybody else's. Sorry, not sorry. The end. In Jollof society, there was a developed class system involving different classes of royal and non-royal nobles, free men, occupational cast, and slaves. Occupational cast included blacksmiths, jewelers, tanners, tailors, musicians, and griots. Smiths were, usually, Smiths were important to society for their ability to make weapons of war, as well as their trusted status for mediating disputes. Griots were employed by every important family to be their chroniclers and advisors, without, much of whom, without whom much of early Jal of history would be unknown. Throughout the different classes, intermarriage was rarely allowed, Women could not marry upwards, and their children did not inherit their father's superior status if children between the classes were born. However, women had some influence and role in government. The Linger, or Queen Mother, was the head of all women and very influential in state politics. She owned several villages that cultivated farms and paid tribute directly to her. There were also other female chiefs whose main task was judging cases involving women. Again, women being primarily instrumental in the judiciary in West African societies. In the empire's most northern state of Wallo, women could aspire to the office of Burr and then rule the state. And a Burr was like, mm, the equivalent would be like a medieval bailiff. The Jolof Empire was organized as five coastal kingdoms from north to south, which included Wallo, Kaor, Baal, Sine, and the kingdom of Salun. All of these states were tributary to the landlocked state of Jolof. The ruler of Jaluf was known as the Boer Ba, and he ruled from the capital city of Linguer. Each Wolof state was governed by its ruler appointed from the descendants of the founder of the state. State rulers were chosen by their respective nobles, while the Boer was selected by a college of electors, which also included the rulers of the five kingdoms, which is kind of similar to the Holy Roman Empire system of elector princes. There was the Boer of Wallo, the Damel of Kayor, the Tene or Tene of Bayol, as well as the two Lamands of the Serer states of Sine and Salun. Each ruler had practical autonomy, but was expected to cooperate with the Boer on matters of defense, trade, and provision of imperial revenue. Once appointed, officeholders went through elaborate witch rules to both familiarize themselves with their new duties and elevate them to a divine status. From then on, they were expected to lead their states to greatness or risk being declared unfavored by the gods and being deposed and sacrificed. The stretches of this political structure resulted in a very autocratic government where personal armies and wealth often superseded constitutional values. Serer tradition says that the kingdom of Sine never paid tribute to the Nidani Nidei nor any of his descendants as Yolov. It further states that the Sine were never subjugated by Yolov and that the probably mythical Didane or Didion? Mm, okay, Rece- himself received his name from the mouth of Maizawali, the king of Sine. Sylvian Diouf states that each vassal kingdom Walo, Takrur, Bayor, Bio, Kayor, Bayol, Sine, Salum, Wuli, and Niani recognized the hegemony of Jolof and paid tribute. I hope you guys work that out. Chapter four, trade and war in pre-colonial Africa. So back in episode 9.3, I talked about the five major, five major climate zones of Africa. These climate zones created the conditions for very specific kinds of production in pre-colonial Africa, from mining to agriculture to animal husbandry. Using the climate zones as a guide helps explain the variety of production systems in pre-colonial Africa. Agriculture and mining were the two most important productive activities in the tropical forest zones of pre-colonial Africa. By 1000 AD, West Africa was the main supplier of gold to Western Europe via the trans-Saharan trade routes, and the kingdoms of Mali, Ghana, and Songhai profited greatly from the trans-Saharan gold trade on the west coast, while the sultanates of Kiowa, Ajuran, and Mogadishu profited on the east coast. Pre-colonial West African societies were more specialized than societies in the rest of Africa and their specialization seems to have increased over time. Trade and the use of slaves were far more developed in West Africa in both the forest and savannah regions, which now makes the trans-Atlantic uh, slave trade make a lot more sense. Slavery was much more entrenched and selling other West Africans was much more entrenched. Another kind of specialization in West Africa was the development of commercial centers. New centers became important as older ones lost their importance when the types of trade and the goods being traded changed over time. Haasaland, for example, was a leading regional center in the 16th century. It grew in strength because of its successful engagement in the gold trade. But as the gold trade became less important in the 17th century, Haasaland was replaced as a major commercial center by the Dahomey Kingdom in the area today now known as Benin. This kingdom had become a key player in the growing trade of slaves. It grew richer and richer as it profited from the 17th century transatlantic slave trade. So when I go to Benin, somebody needs to give me a a meal on lanyard. I mean, it's only fair. At first the gold trade dominated, but later the trades in copper and salt became more important. These valuable goods were used for long distance trade across the Sahara desert. As in the forest areas, gold mining developed in specific locations in the Sahel and North Africa and gold production was well established by the 13th century and gold was traded with the Islamic merchants on the East Coast. This trade was disrupted by the arrival of the Portuguese in the 16th century. The Portuguese wanted a monopoly right over the gold trade with Africans and thus waged war on the coastal Islamic invader uh, traders. These wars, together with the rise of the Atlantic slave trade and the spread of diseases from Europe, led to a drastic decline in gold production. By the end of the 18th century, gold mining and trade were only marginal activities in the region. The need to clear the forest for agriculture was probably the main incentive for the development of African iron smelting. Once the land was cleared, people grew oil palms, yams, and plantain. Plantain, not tain, Ten. All of these were labor-saving crops that yielded well and were thus suitable for the labor-scarce economies of the forest zones. But the forest also limited people's access to grazing land, which meant no cattle. No cattle meant that babies and young children did not typically drink animal milk, which explains why so many of us West Africans of the Americas, including myself, are lactose intolerant. Our ancestors didn't drink cow milk, and now we can't either. The thick forest also meant that plow agriculture didn't develop, and it limited trade due to the lack of pack animals, which is why the trans-Saharan trade routes were so vital and why so many West African kingdoms are located near the Sahel or in the Sahel. Southern and Eastern Africa were home to fewer and, uh, fewer centers of trade owing to the geogra- geography, primarily. You have, how many deserts did I say are in Southern Africa? The largest being, I think, the Kalahari and then the Namib. and There's a lot. And they're like in the middle of Southern Africa. So everybody's kingdoms and stuff had to develop along the fringes of those. But other factors have been speculated as well. One theory is that West Africa's geography hosted larger populations in denser areas, creating a labor surplus and this stimulated trade and specialization. Another theory is that the larger population densities of West Africa decreased the cost of trade and thus encouraged specialization. The answer is probably all of these and some others that I'm not aware of at the moment, but it is clear that there was a significant difference between West African societies and systems and those of the rest of Sub-Saharan Africa. Most of the trade in pre-colonial Africa was not with countries beyond the continent, but consisted of local exchange. Local trade was commonly highly organized. Market days rotated between different villages. And in some cases, the markets were organized on neutral land between the villages. Trade between regions was supported by regional currencies, such as small imported sea sales or locally produced cloth. The biggest problem for all pre-industrial societies, and honestly, even us post-industrial societies, if you think about the havoc that COVID has wreaked on uh, supply lines and trade re- and trade lines, Disease. Disease hurts trade, but helps war, strangely enough. The forest zone harbored mosquitoes and tsetse flies, especially along the rivers and streams, and tsetse flies carry the trypanomon. trypanomon. uh huh. yeah, parasite that is fatal for cattle, so it was too risky to breed cattle around that area. Kitsi flies also mean sleeping sickness and mosquitoes mean malaria. So labor shortages were common due to seasonal outbreaks of these diseases In a stunning feat of hardiness. I had malaria when I got back from Senegal last year. I just thought I was jet lagged. I had a whole last case of malaria and I kept it moving. Hooray me. Malaria was uh, probably the biggest killer, but sleeping sickness was far more prevalent. The combined problems of disease and scarcity of grazing land prevented the development of pastoral or agro-pastoral systems in the forest zones. Despite these problems, people settled in these areas, probably drawn there largely by the labor-saving fertility of the soil. Clearance of forest land, however, required large initial investments to make it usable for planting. The occupation of the forest areas was a heavy task requiring many strong laborers. And forest clearers were generally young men who worked in groups and then shared the land amongst themselves. But labor shortages can lead to social conflict when there's not enough men to do all the work that's needed. The chronic labor shortages made competition over labor common so institutions that regulated access to labor were of crucial importance, AKA guilds, unions, that sort of thing. So join a union. It's part of your African heritage. The family was the main source of labor for farmers and social status was closely associated with the number of children a household was blessed with. Men competed intensely for women and tensions sometimes arose because of the inequality and access to them. Today, we call that a gender war. Right. All societies in the forest zones observe the custom of bride price by which the husband's family paid compensation to the bride's family for the loss of her fertility and labor. Forced marriages, abduction of women and polygamy, which is having more than one wife, were all pretty common. The ideal social organization in the forest region was a large complex household headed by a big man surrounded by his wives, married and unmarried sons, younger brothers, poor relations, other dependents and numerous children, so he was like Isaac labor was shared out in various ways between men and women depending on the job women's share of agricultural labor varied heavy clearing work was usually a job for men planting and weeding were for women and peak activities like harvesting were for everybody the children were used as soon as possible for domestic and farm labor Land in the savannah was generally less fertile than land in the forest zones, but the environment was less hostile, so there was a better chance for agricultural, agro-pastoral, and pastoral economies to develop. Farmers in the savanna mainly grew grains such as millet and later sorghum. Millet was most common in the drier savanna regions of West Africa, and sorghum was most common in Southern Africa. In the pre-colonial savannah regions, the population was very unevenly distributed. Islands of intense agriculture were isolated amidst huge areas of pasture and sparsely populated land. Not surprisingly, most of the densely populated areas were on lake shores, in river valleys, or along coastlines. The densest population concentration was in the Great Lakes region of Central Africa, whereas where all humans come from. In this region, farming was less labor-intensive than in the forest zones. Along the shores of the lakes, it was not necessary to clear the land to regularly open up new areas for cultivation. Here, people first grew yams and sorghum and later began to cultivate bananas. Bananas were important for the survival of agricultural societies in this region. A banana grove could last for 50 years and produce food to support several people. And then you could put the banana peels back into the soil as compost. In some areas, Farmers deliberately established groves by fertilizing the soil with grass and manure carried there from pasture areas. The establishment of banana groves is an example of how pre-colonial African societies adjusted to their circumstances through technological change and innovation. Like the people in the forest zones, the savannah people were constantly threatened by endemic diseases such as malaria. By the late 19th century, colonial doctors estimated that up to 20% of all young children living near the shores of Lake Nyasa, which is also called Lake Malawi, died from malaria. Women in these agro pastoral societies of the savannah played a bigger part in farm labor than the women in the forest zones. Men were mainly responsible for clearing and taking care of cattle, while women were in charge of all the other remaining tasks. Because of this division of labor, men competed again intensely for women and bride price was, just as it is in the forest regions, a common strategy to regulate the competition. Polygamous households were fairly common and the wealthier you were as a man, the more wives you were able to marry. A poor man who lacked the means to pay bride price could still marry by working for his father-in-law, but he could not take his wife to his own village or gain control over the children. And again, just as in the forest region, young men quite often resorted to capturing women through minor raids on neighboring societies. But although women were valuable, and female labor was crucial to the survival of these societies, a captured woman's status was pretty low. Women often lacked access to land, and in the unlikely case of divorce, lost their rights to their children. The Highlands, though, they're not one specific ecological region, but they are found instead in various parts of Africa. The most famous are the highlands of northern Tanzania, central Kenya, and Ethiopia. The highlands have to be discussed separately because the socioeconomic organization of these areas was very different from that of the forest and zones. The well-watered highlands enable Africans to develop systems of intensive agriculture. In the highlands, instead of extending the frontiers of their lands, farmers just worked on improving the land they had. They found methods to prevent the cultivated land from deteriorating over time, like the terraces and the coffee uh, growing regions. Some of these methods were terracing, manuring, mulching, and in some places, irrigation. Terracing was necessary to exploit the land on the hilly slopes. The slope was cut into a series of receding flat levels like steps. To keep the land productive, farmers protected the land from erosion by covering the topsoil with a layer of bark chips or mulch. They increased its fertility by digging in animal manure, which added nutrients such as nitrogen to the soil. And a few farmers in the highlands took extra advantage of the many seven streams and rivers. I'm sorry, many streams and rivers. I don't remember where that seven came from. And they constructed irrigation canals to lead the water to their land, ensuring that it was well watered throughout the year. Intensive agriculture made it possible for populations to grow. Oh, and before I move on from that, so these agricultural practices made the highlands of primarily East Africa drought resistant for so long. So what changed and why are the highlands now kind of synonymous with famine and drought? The High Aswan Dam. That's why. And now there's a dam in Ethiopia and Egypt is mad about it because even though most of the Nile is in uh, Egypt, the source of it is in Lake Tana in Ethiopia. And so Ethiopia kind of has like the most important part. And there's a big old to-do. They're having a diplomatic row, as it were, about uh, the dams in the Nile. But Egypt didn't ask Ethiopia if it was okay when they built the High Aswan Dam. So... I can kind of see why Ethiopia is like, "Mm, too bad, cry about it, over there, damn. Intensive agriculture made it possible for populations to grow. For the people in the highlands, land and not labor was the scarce resource. Men and women commonly worked together in the fields, sowing and harvesting. Men were usually responsible for the heavier work, such as plowing and construction of terraces. When extra labor was needed during the agricultural peak seasons for jobs like clearing land and bringing in a big harvest, a farmer would arrange a work party of men from his village. After the work was done, they'd be invited to a feast where meat and beer were served. Uh, And if you have never had Ethiopian honey beer, oh my God, I forgot what it's called, but it is so damn good. Women played a central role in the work parties as they were in charge of cooking the food and brewing the beer. Households that could not provide a good spread of food and plenty of beer would be unlikely to get many villagers to help in the future. Feed your people. Despite the land scarcity, however, there were seldom conflicts over the land. The most prevalent sign of wealth was not was in fact, not the size of the uh, farmer's land, but his control and ownership of terrace walls, irrigation canals, and other land conservation devices. So you weren't. Judged by how many cattle you had or how many acres you had, but rather how much you could yield off of what you had. Like, you coming up with new irrigation practices, you adding manure to your mulch, like, what are you up to? I like that. It's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. Richer and wealthier farmers employed rural rape. R- 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 wage laborers from the hinterlands not to help with agriculture but to maintain the land and improve its quality the Ethiopian highlands deserve special mention for this as well because the area was very different from the rest of pre-colonial Africa the difference was not only in the Ethiopians development of intensive agriculture but in their use of ox plows the topsoil in Ethiopia was generally deeper than in other regions of Africa making the use of plows beneficial The biggest expansion of plow agriculture in ethiopia took place between the 16th and early 20th centuries because of the plow because the plow made farming more efficient farmers in ethiopia could produce a surplus rather than just what they needed to survive and this in turn boosted their economy and made it possible for them to develop a more centralized political system while people in the other highlands fought over control of conservation and water resources social conflict in the ethiopian highlands was over the oxen and oxen were an important source of wealth. People gained access to and control of oxen through complex institutional arrangements of social cooperation, rental agreements, and labor exchange. And when that wasn't enough, they would just steal it. There was When there was not enough land to raise, there was not enough land to raise sufficient livestock in the highlands. Instead, to acquire oxen... The farmers in the Ethiopian highlands depended on regular market exchanges with the surrounding lowland areas. Now, any city, state, kingdom, or empire will war with its neighbors, and African polities were no different in this regard. By the early 16th century, the Jolof Empire was the preeminent military force in West Africa, capable of fielding 100,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry and then one last thing about the terraces and stuff. So, in the, on the island of Hispaniola, which encompasses the countries of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, the mountain range that essentially forms the natural border between the two countries has been deforested over the last couple hundred years. And that leads to like mudslides and lack of development in the region, economic development rather in the region. And so, there have been efforts to reforest this area. But another thing that um, is being done on a pretty small scale intermittently is using the Ethiopian highlands and Tanzanian highlands, the highlands regions of Africa, using their system of terraces and canals and, uh, and irrigation canals to develop, to grow rice and coffee in those areas which if they can, you know, grow rice, then they can stop importing rice in Haiti and coffee can become a cash crop. So see what happens when you go back to what you know. See what happens. Back to the warfare though. Um, though initially hostile towards one another, the Jolof empire soon established trade links with other fledgling kingdoms that emerged in the breakup of the once vast Mali empire. And some of these were the Songhai and the Mandinka confederations. In 1513, Dengela Kohli led a strong force of Fulani and Mandinka into Futatoro, seizing it from the Jollof and setting up his own dynasty. Kohli was the son of an unsuccessful rebellion against the Songhai Empire, and he might have decided to act against the Jollof as an alternative to fighting the Songhai and the Mandinka. There was intermittent warfare between the kingdoms all over Africa, but when you talk about pre-colonial African warfare, the two main rivalries come to mind. The Songhai versus the Moroccans and the Dahomey versus the Oyo. The Songhai were such a militaristic imperial culture that the Songhai Empire is a playable kingdom in all of the civilization's video games. The Songhai Empire replaced the Mali Empire, which engaged in wars as well, but it was much more trade focused. The Songhai followed, succeeded the Mali Empire as the most important empire in West Africa, covering the modern states of Niger, Mali, Mauritania, Senegal, Nigeria, Guinea, Gambia, southern Algeria, Burkina Faso, and Côte d'Ivoire. Songhai began as a smaller kingdom along the eastern side of the Niger River, but the Songhai would expand their territory dramatically from the reigns of King Sunni Ali from 1464 to 1492. The confederated tribes traded in goods including gold, salt, slaves, kola nuts, leather, dates, and ivory. By the 10th century, the Songhai chiefs had established Gao as a small kingdom, taking control of the people living along the trade routes. Around 1300, Gao had become so prosperous that it attracted the attention of the Mali Empire and its rulers. Gao was subsequently conquered by them and Mali profited from Gao's trade and collected taxes from its kings until about 1430s. Troubles in the Mali homelands made it possible to uh, impossible rather to maintain control of Gao. The historian Ibn Battuta visited Gao in 1353 when the town was part of the Mali empire. He arrived by boat from Timbuktu on his journey returning from visiting the capital of the empire. And he said, then I traveled to the town of Kakha, which is a great town on the Nile, Niger, or Niger River, one of the finest, biggest, and most fertile cities of the Sudan. And Ibn Battuta was hella racist. So for him to say that a black African city, state or kingdom was the finest, biggest, and most fertile of the cities of the Sudan, that's a big deal. There is much rice there and milk and chickens and fish in the cucumber, which has no like. I guess that was his first time having a cucumber. Its people conduct their buying and selling with calories, like the people of Mali. Following the death of Manza Suleiman in 1360, disputes over the succession weakened the Mali Empire. Furthermore, the ruinous reign of Marijata II left the empire in pretty bad financial shape, but the empire itself passed intact to Musa II. However, the real power in the empire was in the hands of Marijata, Musa Sankuro Sige, or like Graham Zier type deal. He put down a Tarek Rebellion in Takeda and attempted to quell the Songhai Rebellion in Gao. While he was successful in Takeda, he did not manage to resubjugate Gao, and so the Songhai effectively retained their independence. During his reign, Sunni Ali would be the one to expand the small kingdom of Gao into the enormous Songhai Empire. Sani Ali reigned from 1464 to 1492, as I said, after the death of Suleiman Dama, In the late 1460s, he conquered many of Songhai's neighboring states, including what remained of the Mali Empire. Sani Ali was considered the empire's most formidable military strategist and conqueror. During his campaigns for expansion, Ali conquered many lands, repelling attacks from the Masi from the south and overcoming the Dogon of the north. He annexed Timbuktu in 1468, after the Islamic leaders of the town requested his assistance in over, overthrowing the marauding Taregs who had taken the city following the decline of Mali. However, Ali met stark resistance after setting his eyes on the wealthy and renowned trading town of Jinné, also known as Jenne Jaram. After persistent seven-year siege, he was able to forcefully incorporate it into his vast empire in 1473, but only after having starved his citizens into surrender. It's kind of it's, it's a little bit after the conquest of Constantinople, but some of his strategies in conquering Jene are eerily reminiscent of Mehmet's tactics in conquering Constantinople. You have to wonder maybe if he did some reading. The invasion of Sani Ali and his forces caused harm to the city of Timbuktu, and he was described as an intolerant tyrant in many Muslim accounts, such as the Tariq al-Fatash, which was written by Mahmud Kati, who was a notable ally of the succeeding Askia Muhammad I. And a lot of why Sani Ali is not looked upon favorably by Muslim historians is because they don't think that his conversion to Islam was genuine and that he had, like, uh, he had hella wives and half of them were still pagan. According to the Cambridge History of Africa, the Islamic historian al-Sadi expresses this sentiment in describing his incursion on Timbuktu. They also were really, really saddened by, like, what he did to Timbuktu. Sunni Ali entered Timbuktu, committed gross iniquity, burned and destroyed the town, and brutally tortured many people there. When Akilu heard of the coming of Sunni Ali, he brought a thousand camels to carry the Fukawa of Sankori and went with them to Walada. The godless tyrant was engaged in slaughtering those who remained in Timbuktu and humiliating them. Sunni Ali conducted a repressive policy against the scholars of Timbuktu. There's been a lot of like retconning of, of Sunni Ali as being like a faithful Muslim or whatever, but his contemporary, his Muslim contemporaries did not see him that way. I ain't sorry nothing but I'm just saying. So he conducted a very propulsive policy against the scholars of Timbuktu, especially those of the Sankore region who were associated with the Tarek. With his control of critical trade routes and cities such as Timbuktu, Sani Ali brought great wealth to the Songhai Empire, which at its height would surpass the wealth of Mali. In oral tradition, Sani Ali is often known as a powerful politician and great military commander. Now, whatever the case really was, his legend consists of him being a fearless conqueror who united a great empire, sparking a legacy that is still intact today. Under his reign, Jinné and Timbuktu eventually did regain their status as great centers of learning though. Now, during the reign of Sunni Ali, Songhay, like I said, surpassed the Mali empire. His death on November 6, 1492 is a matter of conjecture. According to the Tariq al-Sudan, Ali drowned while crossing the Niger River, but oral tradition believes he was killed by his sister's son, Askia Muhammad Turei. He was succeeded by his son, Sunni Baru, who was challenged by Askia because Baru was not seen as a faithful Muslim. Askiya ended up on the throne. And according to the Tariq al-Sudan, it is relieved that this action caused Sunni Ali's daughters to shout out Asikia, or a more modern phrasing would be Asitia, or it... He shall not be it at the news of this takeover. Askiya Muhammad Ture is known as Askiya the Great because he organized the territories that Sani Ali had previously conquered and extended Songhai power far to the south and east. So where Sani Ali is a Mehmed II, Askiya Ture is a Suleiman the Magnificent. Except both Suleiman and uh, Mehmed were devout Muslims. Mehmed, more so, even, than uh, Suleiman. So, Askia organized these territories that Sunni Ali had previously conquered, and he extended Songhai power far to the south and east. The army of the Songhai Empire under Askia Muhammad I, from 1493 to 1528, possessed a full-time corps of warriors. Al-Sadi, the chronicler who wrote the Tariq al-Sudan, compared Askia Muhammad's army to that of his predecessors. He distinguished between the civilian and the army, unlike Sunni Ali when everyone was a soldier there. Askia Muhammad was not as tactful as Sunni Ali in terms of military con- he was he didn't have as many mini- military conquests, but he did manage to grow Songhai's power through diplomacy. Askia opened up religious schools, constructed mosques, and opened up his court to scholars and poets from throughout the Muslim world. Among his other great accomplishments was an interest in astronomical knowledge, which led to a flourishing of astronomers and observatories in the capital. And I'm gonna get more into that next episode. While not as renowned as his predecessors for his military skills, he initiated many campaigns, notably declaring jihad against the neighboring Mossi. Even after subduing them, he did not force them to convert to Islam. His army consisted of war canoes, expert cavalry, protective armor, iron tip weapons, and a very organized standing militia. As Askia the Great grew older, his power declined. In 1528, his sons revolted against him and declared Musa, one of his many sons, as king following Musa's overthrow in 1531 by those same sons, Songhai's empire went into decline and subsequent rulers never lived up to Askia's height. The decline of Songhai pricked up the ears of the Moroccan Saudi Sultanate to its north. Now the main reason for the Saudi invasion of Songhai was to seize control and revive the Trans-Saharan trade in salt and gold. The Songhai military during Askia's reign consisted of full-time soldiers, but subsequent rulers never modernized the Songhai army. On the other hand, the Saudian army included thousands of arquebusiers, and the arquebus was a like early form of a rifle, and eight English cannons. So way, way, way back in like one of my first series, I think on Shakespeare's plays, I think in fact, 1.3 About Othello. I mentioned how the English court during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I was the Moroccans were the first to acknowledge Queen Elizabeth I as ruler of England, where the Catholic kingdoms were steadfastly like, no, no, not her, not the Protestant, no. And There was was that famous uh, diplomat to Moroccan diplomat, who some people said um, had an affair with Queen Elizabeth. Wouldn't put it past her. He was a very handsome man. He was 6'3". And they had lots of trade links, which made the Christian kingdoms of Europe really upset because the Moroccans were Muslim. And it was like, how dare you, you know, go against us and have this thriving trade and all of these Moroccans. There was a Moroccan quarter in London, and I think some of that architecture still exists. And, you know, the Moroccans were warmly recepted in the English court, which was unusual at that time. But then the French copycats, they are, well, maybe not copycats, because way, way back in the Middle Ages, they did have a nominal alliance with one of the Mongol Khanates. But they also reached out to the Ottomans and tried to set up an alliance because they hated, both of them hated the Austrian Habsburgs so much. Anyways, back to, back to Africa, sorry. Um, in the Battle of Tandibi on 13 March, 1591, the Moroccans destroyed the entire Songhai army and proceeded to capture Gao and Timbuktu, which pff, that was the end of the Songhai. The Saudian invasion of the Songhai Empire began with an expedition sent in 1590 by Sultan Ahmad al-Mansur of the Saudian dynasty. I wonder, is he like the same guy? No, not from the Battle of Tours. But he ruled over present-day Morocco at that time. The Saudian army was led by Judar Pasha. Ahmad al-Mansur was the longest raiding sultan of the Saudian dynasty, and the capital was located in Marrakesh, which is in present-day Morocco. Al-Mansur's invasion of the Songhai Empire was the only major foreign campaign of his reign and was likely motivated, like I said, by a number of factors, including the Trans-Saharan trade routes and the need to control and revive them. Uh, The expansion of the European trade routes around the whole coast of Africa, however, had undermined the importance of the Trans-Saharan routes and reduced the flow of gold across the desert. Thus, Al-Mansur may have sought to increase his access to gold through direct control of the gold mines in the South. Saudi interest in the sugar trade might have also been a motivation, as control of the trans-Saharan trade routes also allowed him to increase Morocco's access to slaves, on which the sugar processing industry relied and which were necessary to compete with the prices of sugar coming from Brazil in the Caribbean, which was controlled by Europeans and also reliant on slaves. Finally, the invasion may have been a way for al-Mansur to elevate his claim to being a universal Muslim ruler. Since expansion eastward into Ottoman territory had been unfruitful, the only path left for Saudian expansion was to the south. This ambition may have been further encouraged by the embassies of Idris Aluma, the Mai or king of the Kanem-Bornu Empire, who, having failed to secure support from the Ottoman Empire, expressed willingness to co uh, to recognize Al-Manzur as Caliph instead. In the end, Moroccan control was tenuously established over a large region stretching between Kukia, also spelled Kukia, and Genay, around the northern curve of the Niger River. Then you have the Dahomey versus the Oyo. Now, oral tradition dictates that the Dahomey empire was established around 1600 by the fawn, who had recently settled in the area. But the Fon say, it was earlier than that. So I'm gonna trust them, cause they were there. The palace in Abomey was established in the early 17th century. The foundational king of the kingdom of Dahomey is often considered to be Huagjibara, <laughs> who built the royal palaces of Abome and began raiding and taking over towns outside of the Obome Plateau. At the same time, the slave trade began increasing in size in the coastal region through the kingdom of Waida and Alada and trade with the Portuguese, Dutch, and British. The Dahomey kingdom became known to European traders at this time as a major source of slaves in the slave trade at Alada and Wida. And it is for this reason that I have not seen woman king and probably will not see woman king Yay, Dahomey warriors, but like, goddamn, did you have to sell me to the Portuguese? King Ajaga, grandson of Hubbada, came to the throne in 1718 and began significant expansion of the Kingdom of Dahomey. Fun fact, once the Kingdom of Dahomey was incorporated into the British Empire in the late 19th century, the last king of Dahomey, or second to last king, third to last king, one of the last kings of Dahomey, actually went into asylum in Haiti, where he lived for like another 20 years. By 1720, King Ajaga repudiated the kingdom's allegiance to Alada and began increasing military activity throughout the region. In 1724, Ajaga offered his military to help with the succession struggle within Alada. However, he turned his forces on the army of Alada and took over the city, relocating his capital from Abome to Alara. In 1727, Ajaga took over the city of Waida and thus became the primary force on a major part of the West African coast. Right. By 1729, Ajaga began a war against the Oyo with a number of cross-border raids. So I guess that answers the who started it. During the war, the royal family of Waida returned to the throne, forcing Ajaga to fight to reclaim the city. He moved much of his army with a significant portion in the back composed of women dressed like male warriors, and this is possibly the beginning of the Dahomey Amazons. The wider royal family had assumed that the Dahomey army had been weakened in the war with Oyo and seeing such a large force, which said absolutely not, they uh, fled from the city. In 1730, the war with Oyo ended and Dahomey retained domestic control but became a tributary of the Oyo empire. By the end of Ajaga's reign, the kingdom of Dahomey occupied significant areas, particularly the crucial coastal slave trade cities. At the same time, Ajaga created much of the administrative apparatus of the kingdom and instituted the key ceremony of the annual customs, or Huatanu, in font. Following the death of Aj- uh, Ajaka in 1740, the empire was defined by a significant political struggle, although limited largely to within the palace walls, and deepening engagement with the slave trade. There was a significant succession, a uh, fight after Ajaka's death when the recognized heir was passed over for Tekbasu, who ruled from 1740 to 1774. I'm going way out of the scope with that. I said I was originally going to go, but Oyo versus the homie is just... It's good tea, honey. Tekbesu moved the capital city back to Obome, but he had to deal with a number of different factions from powerful members of the kingdom uh, and powerful families rather in the kingdom and in keeping conquered territories loyal. At the same time, the emperor con- emperor pff, continued slave raids throughout the region and became a major supplier to the Atlantic slave trade. Thanks. Thanks a lot. In the late 18th century, oil put pressure onto Dahomey to reduce its participation in the slave trade, largely to protect its own slave trade. And Dahomey complied by limiting some of its slave trade. I know I sound bitter and yeah, I, 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 I'm bitter. I'm not over it and I'm not gonna get over it. This grudge is forever, bitch. What the fuck? And Dahomey, like I said, they comply by limiting some of the slave trade, probably because they had to. However, even with this, the empire was a significant player in the slave trade, supplying up to about 20% of the total slave trade and providing the largest portion of revenue for the king. Yeah, never going to see woman king. Never, ever, ever. Viola, why did you do that? Why, why did you do that? Why, why? No. In 1818, King Gezo, who reigned from 1818 to 1858, came to the throne by forcibly replacing his older brother, Andonzo. Adam dezon? Okay. Crucial in Gezo's rise to power was the financial and military assistance of Francisco Felix de Souza, a prominent Brazilian slave trader located in Waida. As a result, Gaza named De Souza the Chacha or viceroy of Trade in Waida, providing him with significantly more power and money. And the title Chacha remains an important honorary position in Waida to this day. In 1823, Gezo led armies against Oyo, and was this time able at, to end the tributary status of Dahomey and permanently weaken Oyo. The origins of the Oyo empire lie with Ora, Oranyan, also known as Oramian, the last prince of the Yoruba kingdom of Ile-Ife. Oramian made such made an agreement with his brother to launch a punitive raid on their northern neighbors for insulting their father, Odudua, the first une of Ifa, uni of Ifa, sorry. On the way to the battle, the brothers quarreled and the army split up. Oramian's force was too small to make a successful attack. So he wandered to the Southern shore reaching Busa. There, the local chief entertained him and provided a large snake with a magical charm attached to its throat. If anyone wants to gift me anything for my birthday, I have a ball python. Her name is Aida, she's beautiful. And I would like a nice chain to attach to her throat. She probably wouldn't like it though. The chief instructed Oramian to follow the snake until it stopped somewhere for seven days and disappeared into the ground. Oramian followed this advice and founded Oyo, where the serpent stopped. Ball pythons are not serpents. Um, the site is remembered as Ajaka. Oramion made Oyo his new kingdom and became the first Oba, meaning king or ruler in the Yoruba language, with the title of Alafen of Oyo, and Alafen means owner of the pals in Yoruba. He left all his treasures in Ife and allowed another king to rule there. At one time, Oyo Ile was at war with the Bariba Borgu, who wanted to subjugate the new city still under construction. Orakun Ajgunla of, listen, Yoruba people, <sighs> oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Ooh, y'all got some names on y'all. Ooh, child, ooh, I must be Igbo, cause I can't say this. <sighs> Not long after the war was won, an had a son, ajuwana Jaka. much later Arambambi was born by the woman from tapa. It's believed that the name Sango was given to his maternal gra- given by his maternal grandfather or he adopted it from the local god named for the lo- god of thunder. Either way the royal family was devoted to the spirits of thunder, Jakuta and war Ogle. The founding of Oyo is regarded as around 1300 CE and Oromion, the first Oba, was succeeded by Oba Ajaka, Olafan of Oyo. Ajaka was deposed because he lacked Europe of military virtue and allowed his sub-chiefs too much independence. The leadership was then conferred upon Ajaka's brother, Shango, who was later deified as the deity of thunder and lightning. So he must've been a beast on that battlefield. Ajaka was restored after Sango's death and he returned to the throne thoroughly chastened, and way more warlike. His successor, Cory managed to conquer the rest of what later historians would refer to as Metropolitan Oyo. There was a high degree of professionalism in the army of the Oyo Empire. Its military success was due in large part to its cavalry, as well as the leadership and courage of Oyo officers and warriors. They had much elan, as it were. Because of its main geographic focus was to the north of the forest, Oil enjoyed easier farming and thus a steady growth in population, which kept up their military numbers. This contributed to their ability to field a consistently larger force. So the Oyo and the Songhai are are notable in pre-colonial African military history for having these large, large forces that typically you would see in like China or somewhere like that there was also an entrenched militaristic culture in Oyo where victory was obligatory and defeat carried the duty of committing suicide so they were on like Edo period Sengoku period levels of crazy about war and honor and all that type of stuff this do-or-die policy no doubt contributed to the military aggressiveness of Oyo's generals. And I think like in the Nigerian military to this day, a lot of the generals are Yoruba because they are still on some like, what's up, what's up, what's up, like be about it type situation. Who knew that ride or die was an African proverb? The Oyo Empire was the only Yoruba state to adopt cavalry. It did so because most of its territory was in the Northern Savannah, which meant lots of room for the horses to charge. The origin of this cavalry is unclear. However, the Nupe, Borgu, and Hausa in neighboring territories also use cavalry and may have had the same historical source. Oyo was able to purchase horses from the north and maintain them in metropolitan oil because of the partial freedom from the Titi fly. Cavalry was the long arm of the Oyo empire. Late 16th and 17th century expeditions were composed entirely of cavalry. There were drawbacks to this though. Oyo could not maintain its cavalry army in the south, but it could raid at will. Cavalry in a highly developed society such as Oyo was usually divided into light and heavy, and that is generally standard in most standing armies. Heavy cavalry on larger imported horses was armed with heavy thrusting lances or spears and also with swords. Light cavalry on smaller indigenous ponies were armed with clubs and bows. Infantry in the region around the Oyo Empire was uniform in both armor and armament. All infantry in the region carried shields, swords, and lances of one type or another. Shields were usually about four feet tall and two feet wide and made of elephant or ox hide. The three foot long heavy sword was the main armament for close combat. The Yoruba and their neighbors used triple barbed javelins, which could be thrown accurately from about 30 paces. The Oyo Empire, like many empires before it, used both local and tributary forces to expand its domains. The structure of the Oyo military prior to its imperial period was simple and closer aligned to the central government in metropolitan oil. This may have been adequate in the 14th century when Oyo only controlled its heartland, but to make and maintain conquests further away, the structure underwent several changes. Oyo maintained a semi-standing army of specialist cavalry soldiers, called the Iso or Isho or formerly the Iso of Ikoi. These were seventy junior war chiefs who were nominated by the Oyo Messi and confirmed for the Ala- confirmed by the Alafin of Oyo. The Esso were appointed for their military skill without regard to heritage, although de facto dynasties of Esso were also known to exist. The Esso were led by the Ariona Canapho and were famous for living by a warrior code that was comparable to the Latin dictum infra dignitatum or like dignity to infinity, death before dishonor, that sort of thing. Many believe that the decline of the Oyo empire started as early as 1754 with the dynastic intrigues and palace coups sponsored by the Oyo prime minister, Gaha. He's like the Jafar of Oyo. As Oyo tore itself apart via political intrigue, its vassals began taking advantage of the situation to press for independence. The Egba, under the leadership of a war chief called the Shabi, massacred the Alare station in their area and drove off an Oyo punitive force. In 1823, Dahomey, like I said earlier, began to raid villages under the protection of Oyo. Oyo immediately demanded a huge tribute from King Gezo for the unauthorized incursion, to which Gezo dispatched his bazillion, viceroy Francisco Felix de Souza to the Alafin to make peace. Those peace talks broke down and Oyo attacked Dahomey and were decisively defeated, ending Oyo's uh, hegemony over Dahomey. After regaining its independence, Dahomey began raiding the corridor, selling captured Yoruba to the Europeans, most notably to the Portuguese, in the same manner that the Oyo had done when they subjugated the Dahomey. Cucho Lewis, the third to last adult survivor of the Atlantic slave trade between Africa and the United States, was brought to the United States on board the slave ship Clotilda in 1860. He was born Aluale Kasola in what was an ethnic Yoruba village in Oyoland. when his village was raided by Dahomey female warriors under King Gele and then taken to the slaving port of Oida. He was then sold to Captain William Foster of the Clotilda, an American ship recently built in Mobile, Alabama and owned by businessman Timothy Mayer. The importation of slaves into the United States had been illegal since 1808, but slaves were still routinely smuggled in from Spanish Cuba. In the book Barracoon, written by Zora Neale Hurston in the 1930s and finally published in 2018, Cujo recalls working on Timothy Mayer's farm in Alabama and realizing that one of the other African-born slaves was Dahomey, the same people that had sold him into slavery. Cujo recalls telling another slave about the beef between the Yoruba and the Dahomey back in Africa, and the slave asked him if he was bitter or angry with that Dahomey slave. With Cujo resignedly saying no, bitterness had led both men into becoming slaves, so he had no time for bitterness. And he had also converted from Islam to Christianity during his enslavement. And forgiveness is like a huge part of Christianity, at least the kind of Christianity that was forced on us. Chapter five, slavery in pre-colonial Africa. Now slavery, speaking of slavery, has built every empire from the Qin dynasty, Qin, Qin dynasty in China, It was abolished during the Tang, I want to be clear, don't come for me, to Republican and Imperial Rome, to the British Empire, and the United States of America. And this is no different from pre-colonial African empires either. While slaves did not build the pyramids at Giza, which, by the way, were constructed 500 years before the reign of any pharaoh named Ramesses, so the Egyptian captivity is, once again, not based on any historical or archeological record. Mm, Just needed to point that out again for all of you Prince of Egypt lovers out there. Slavery was commonplace in ancient Egypt and throughout the continent of Africa. Pre-colonial slavery in Africa was driven first by labor demands. If there was an outbreak of disease and more women were needed in a kingdom, the men would, like I said earlier, conduct raids and carry off women as prizes. This was also common outside of Africa with the early Roman rape of the saving women as a prime example. Slaves were generally made as the spoils of war across the continent, but being the child of a slave did not make one a slave. Social mobility was not a given, But the child of a slave had opportunities to advance his or herself and attain a pretty respectable rank in society, although the stain of coming from an outside conquered people was probably not erased in one or two generations. Most slaves marry into the tribe or kingdom that conquered theirs, and then their children would identify with that conquering tribe, naturally. The Indian Ocean slave trade also known as the East African slave trade, was a multi-directional slave trade where Africans were sent as slaves to the Middle East, to the Indian Ocean Islands, including Madagascar, Seychelles, and Meridias, to the Indian subcontinent, and later to the Americas. Slave trading in the Indian Ocean goes back to 2500 BCE. Ancient Babylonians, Egyptians, Greeks, various Indian groups, and Persians all traded slaves on a small scale across the Indian Ocean and sometimes into the Red Sea. Slave trading in the Red Sea around the time of Alexander the Great is described by Agatha, Agatha Char, Agatha Oh Greeks, you getting your chance. I don't know how the hell to say that. And Strabo's Geographica, completed after 23 CE, mentions Greeks from Egypt trading slaves at the port of Adulis and other ports on the Horn of Africa coasts. Pliny the Elder's Natural History, which was published in 77 CE, also describes Indian Ocean slave trading. In the first century CE, Peripulus of the Erythraean Sea, why the hell is that supposed to be? Advised of slave trading opportunities in the region, particularly in the training of beautiful girls for concubinage. According to this manual, slaves were exported from Omana, which is likely present-day Oman, and Kane to the west coast of India. The ancient Indian Ocean slave trade was enabled by building boats capable of carrying large numbers of human beings in the Persian Gulf using wood imported from India. These shipbuilding activities go back to Babylonian Achaemenid times. Gujarati merchants evolved into the first explorers of the Indian Ocean as they traded slaves as well as African goods such as ivory and tortoiseshells. The Gujaratis were participants in the slavery business in Mombasa, Zanzibar, and to some extent in the Southern African region. Indonesians were also participants and brought spices to Africa's shores. They would have returned via India and Sri Lanka with ivory, iron, skins, and slaves. After the involvement of the Byzantine Empire and Sassanid Empire in slave trading in the 6th century AD, it became a major enterprise. Cosmos Indo Cosmos oh here we go, wrote in his Christian Topography in 550 CE, that Somali port cities were exporting slaves captured in the interior to Byzantine Egypt via the Red Sea. He also mentioned the import of eunuchs by the Byzantines from Mesopotamia in India. After the first century, the export of black Africans from Tanzania, Mozambique, and other Bantu groups became a constant factor. Under the Sassanids, Indian Indian Ocean trade was not just used to transport slaves, but also sometimes scholars and merchants or slaves that were merchants and scholars. Exports of slaves to the Muslim world from the Indian Ocean began after Muslim, Arab, and Swahili traders won control of the Swahili coast and sea routes during the 9th century. These traders captured Bantu peoples called Zanj from the interior in present-day lands of Kenya, Mozambique, and Tanzania and brought them to the coast. There, the slaves gradually assimilated in the rural areas. Rrr, pff, particularly on the Anjuga and Pemba Islands. Or is it Unguja and Pemba Islands? Muslim merchants traded an estimated 1,000 African slaves annually between 800 and 1,700, a number that grew to about 4,000 during the 18th century and 3,700 from 1800 to 1870. When estimating the number of people enslaved from East Africa, author Ndaye, and French historian Olivier Petre Grin, Fuck France. Estimate 8 million as the total number of people transported from the 7th century until 1920, amounting to an average of about 5,700 people per year. Many of these slaves were transported by the Indian Ocean and Red Sea via the island of Zanzibar. This compares with their estimate of about 9 million people enslaved and transported via the Sahara. The captives were sold throughout the Middle East and East Africa. This trade accelerated as superior ships, led to more trade, and a greater demand for labor on plantations in the region. Eventually, tens of thousands of captives were being taken every year. Slave uh, slave labor in East Africa was drawn from the Zanj, who were for centuries shipped as slaves by Muslim traders to all those countries bordering the Indian Ocean. The Umayyad and Abbasid caliphs, recruited many Zanj slaves as soldiers and as early as 696 there were revolts of Zanj slave soldiers in Iraq. A 7th century Chinese text mentions ambassadors from Java presenting the Chinese emperor with two Xenji, or Zanj slaves as gifts in 614. And 8th and 9th century chronicles mention Zanj slaves reaching China from the Hindu kingdom of Srivijaya in Java. The 12th century Arab geographer Al Idrisi recorded that the ruler of the Persian island of Kish raids the Zan's country with his ships and takes many captives. According to the 14th century Berber explorer Ibn Battuta, that racist bastard, the sultans of the Kiwa Sultanate would frequently raid the areas around what is today Tanzania for slaves. The Zan's Rebellion, a series of uprisings that took place between 869 and 883 AD near the city of Basra, also known as Basara, situated in present-day Iraq, is believed to have involved enslaved Zanj that had originally been captured from the African Great Lakes region in areas further south in East Africa. Fun fact, um, when I was in Iraq, all of the Iraqi people wanted me to go to Basra because there were there was Zanj there, there were Abid there. And I was like, don't ever call me an Abid in your life or I will fucking kill you. It grew to involve over 500,000 slaves and free men who were imported from across the Muslim empire and claimed over tens of thousands of lives in lower Iraq. The Zanj who were taken as slaves to the Middle East were often used in strenuous agricultural work. As the plantation economy boomed and the Arabs became richer, agriculture and other manual labor was thought to be demeaning. The resulting labor shortage led to an increased slave market. It is certain that large numbers of slaves were exported from East Africa. The best evidence of this is the magnitude of the Zanj revolt in Iraq in the 9th century. Although not all of the slaves involved were Zanj, the Zanj were needed to take care of the tigris-Euphrates delta, which had become abandoned marshland as a result of peasant migration and repeated flooding, which could be reclaimed through intensive labor. Wealthy proprietors had received extensive grants of title land on the condition that they would make it arable. Sugarcane was prominent among the products of their plantations, particularly in Khuzestan province. Zans also worked the salt mines of Mesopotamia, particularly around Basra. Historian M. A. Shaban has argued that the rebellion was not a slave revolt, but a revolt of blacks who were slaves, Dr. Shaban. They were slaves, the Zayans were slaves, so it it was a slave revolt. In his opinion, although a few runaway slaves did join the revolt, the majority of the participants were Arabs and free in his opinion. But how did they get there? Nine times out of 10, it was as a slave. If the revolt had been led by slaves, he argues, they would have lacked the necessary resources to combat the Abbasid government for as long as they did. Mm, I think in the history of African slave revolts throughout history, it's pretty much a given that they're not going to need, that they're not gonna have the technological advantage. But I mean, in Jamaica, the Maroons resisted the British for like 15, 20 years. They also didn't have technological advantage. So like I said, the Zandra Revolt was a slave revolt. You can go to hell, M.A. Shabon. The establishment of the Dutch East India Trading Company in the early 17th century led to a quick increase in the volume of the slave trade in the region. There were perhaps up to about 500,000 slaves in various Dutch colonies during the 17th and 18th centuries in the Indian Ocean. For example, some 4,000 African slaves were used to build the Colombo Fortress in Dutch Ceylon. Bali and neighboring islands supplied regional networks with around 100 to 150,000 slaves between 1620 and 1830. Indian and Chinese slave traders supplied Dutch Indonesia with about 250,000 slaves during the 17th and 18th centuries. So damn, everybody had a hand in the slave trade on both sides of the continent. The East India Company was established during the same period. This is the British one. And in 1622, one of its ships carried slaves from the Coromandel Coast to the Dutch East Indies. Oh no, this is the same Dutch East India company. The EIC mostly traded in African slaves, but also some Asian slaves purchased from Indian, Indonesian, and Chinese slave traders. The French established colonies on the islands of Réunion and Meridius in 1721. By 1735, some 7,200 slaves populated the Mascarene Islands, a number which had reached 133,000 by 1807. The British captured the islands in 1810, however, and because the British had prohibited the slave trade in 1807, a system of clandestine slave trade developed to bring slaves to French planters on the island. And all about 336,000 to 388,000 slaves were exported to the Mascarene Islands from 1670 until 1848. And all European slave traders exported between 500,000 to 750,000 slaves within the Indian Ocean between 1500 and 1850. And almost that same amount were exported from the Indian Ocean to the Americas during that same period. Damn, why did they take them all the way over there? The slave trade in the Indian Ocean was nevertheless very limited compared to the roughly 12 million slaves exported across the Atlantic. Some 200,000 slaves were sent in the 19th century to European plantations in the Western Indian Ocean. The nature of slavery maintained its status quo on the continent, but the advent of the transatlantic slave trade had unforeseen consequences for West and Central African kingdoms anyway. In the kingdom of Congo, the Congo people had forcibly captured people and transferred them to the royal capital and other lesser capitals as a way of increasing royal access to tax and tribute paying subjects. So they were were less slaves than they were impressed citizens of the Congo kingdom. So basically you were taken from wherever you were, brought into Congo dominated areas and told, do what you do over there, over here so that we can get tax money from you. It is this earlier system that made Congo's capital such a large city embedded in a densely settled, immediate hinterland. And it was the same mechanism of enslavement and transfer of population that made Congo able to sell captives outside of its kingdom's borders. Mvimba a Nzinga, Nzinga Mvimba, Funza Nzinga Mvimba, or Dom Afonso, also known as King Afonso I, was the sixth ruler of the Kingdom of Congo from the Lukeni Kanda dynasty, and he ruled in the first half of the 16th century. He reigned from 1509 to late 1542 or 1543. During this time, Afonso had an increasingly awkward relationship with the Kingdom of Portugal. This relationship came to a head during the latter half of the 1520s when the Congo slave trade was at its peak, a direct result of Portuguese traders violating the law of Afonso I, concerning who could and could not be sold as a slave the Portuguese actively subverted Afonso by going through his vassals Afonso expressed a great deal of irritation with the Portuguese in a letter he wrote in 1514 in this letter Afonso openly stated he would like to have full control of the Congo Portuguese slave trade and also please stop sending slave traders send us like Doctors and teachers build hospitals, like do something else. You just keep like taking people, even people we said don't take, and um it's kind of annoying. But would the Portuguese listen? No. So the Portuguese of course didn't approve of this measure and the situation got progressively worse. Who are you telling? The slave trade continued unabated until it was about resolved in 1526. Alfonso created a commission to investigate the origin of any individual that was going to be sold as a slave. Listen, I don't care if I really was one of those people that could be sold as a slave. If I find out that if I say I'm a member of XYZ tribe, I'm not going to, to get sold, <laughs> I'm a lie. This helped put an end to the illegal slave trade occurring in the Congo. Mm, for a minute there, at least. Although Afonso was outspokenly opposed to slavery and initially fought the Portuguese demand for human beings, he did eventually relent in order to sustain the economy of the Congo. Initially, he was sending more captives and criminals to be sold as slaves, but eventually the Portuguese demand exceeded the country's potential supply, prompting them to search for slaves in neighboring regions. Afonso let this situation continue for as long as it did in an attempt to not be overtly rude to the Portuguese, as he had actively required their help to resolve various conflicts within his kingdom. Afonso had also been attempting to resolve the situation diplomatically through letters to the Vatican because he was a Christian, as well as to the Portuguese king. The responses told him that they had little intention of altering the actions of the Portuguese traders. The Portuguese regarded the slave trade as nothing more than typical commerce, and this is why the commission was established. The Portuguese showed a clear disdain for the condition of the slave economy of the Congo and made a failed attempt to assassinate Afonso in 1540. During his reign, Afonso I leveraged other desirable resources to consolidate his power and maintain the status quo with Portugal, mainly gold, iron, and copper. These resources were the bargaining chips that allow Afonso to negotiate with the Portuguese, but also to insulate himself from them as well, to a lesser extent. His own sons accidentally, he sent them to Lisbon or put them on a ship to Lisbon so that they could be educated there. And the ship got commandeered by somebody and they ended up on a fazenda, which is Portuguese for uh, plantation or farm. They ended up on a fazenda in Portugal. It took seven years for him to locate and repatriate his royal sons. And guess what they went back into business doing as soon as they got back to Congo? Slave trading. They didn't give a damn, so why should I give a fuck? This is also detailed in the book uh, Princes of Calabar, if you want to read up more about how the people of the Niger Delta engaged in slave trade. And Adam Hofschild's book King Leopold's goals. Hashtao characterizes Afonso as a selective modernizer. Get this. Because he welcomed European scientific innovations and the Catholic Church, but he refused to adopt Portugal's legal code and sell land to Portuguese prospectors. In fact, Afonso ridiculed the Ordinacillos Manuelinas, which was the Portuguese law code, when he read it in 1516 asking the Portuguese emissary de Castro, what is the punishment Castro for putting one's feet on the ground? No contemporary record mentions anything about land sales. Indeed, land in Congo was never sold to anybody. It was held in common and protected by the king. Now I think Hofsthal is out of his depth with this one because adopting Portuguese laws in the Congo kingdom, like how does that make you not a modernizer? This is Congo, bitch. Why would we have Portuguese law, land laws, especially Portuguese land laws in Congo? Portuguese land laws apply to Portuguese land. This is Congo, bitch. If you don't like it, take your ass back to Portugal. Adopting Portuguese land laws outside of Portugal effectively makes any country that does so, Congo in this situation, a vassal state. So, Why is the adoption of European laws regarding land seen as modernizing anyway? Congo's pre-colonial collectivization of land worked pretty well for them. So this was a really petty and stupid thing to bring up and just proof that maybe white people should just stop writing about Africa. Like maybe shut up. Although initially Congo exported very few slaves, following the development of a successful sugar growing colony on the Isle of Saltome, the Kingdom of Congo became a major source of slaves for the island's traders. The Cantino Atlas of 1502 mentions Congo as a source of slaves for the island of Saltome. It's likely that most of the slaves exported to the Portuguese were war captives from Congo's campaigns of expansion. In addition, the expansionary wars helped Afonso consolidate his power in, southern, in his southern and eastern border regions while also, again, yielding slaves. Early estimates made by Portuguese and Congo officials put the exports as about four and 5,000 per year. Although Afonso and the Portuguese rulers claimed a joint monopoly on the external slave trade, traders based in São Tomé violated the royal orders, at times trading with rebels in Mpanzalubu on the south bank of the Congo River until Afonso conquered them in 1526 and along the Kwanzaa River with the emerging kingdom of Ndongo in present-day Angola. Adongo sent a diplomatic mission to Portugal in 1518 with the aim of establishing a separate relationship, but the mission which reached Africa in 1520 failed partially because of a sword fight (laughs) between the Portuguese royal mission and Tomistas. In 1526, Afonso complained about merchants' violation of his end of the monopoly, claiming that the Portuguese officials had not regulated them sufficiently and threatened to stop it altogether. In the end, he established the board to oversee the trade. And despite its long establishment within his kingdom, Afonso believed that the slave trade should be subject to Congo law. When he suspected the Portuguese of receiving illegally enslaved persons to sell, he wrote to King João III of Portugal in 1526, imploring him to put a stop to this practice and he never got a response. Ultimately, he decided you know, that the commission was going to be the way that he did it. However, the kings of Portugal eventually determined the best way to deal with the trade through Kwanzaa to Ndongo, was to establish their own base there. In 1560, again, responding to a request from Angola, who's basically begging for colonization at this point, the Portuguese crown sent Paulo Dias de Novais as ambassador to Ndongo with the idea of settling relations with the country. Gola Kalwanji was not interested in this mission, however, as it offered only baptism in diplomatic relations. How are you gonna offer baptism? It's <laughs> leverage for trade now. What he wanted was guns. In 1575, Portugal would follow with a mission of conquest also under Paulo, Paulo Dias de Novais, this time to conquer the country and monopolize its slave trade. And like I said, from like 1560 something. Angola was basically asking for that. The Portuguese were able to successfully capitalize on factionalism within the Congo kingdom and make alliances with Congo rivals like the Ndongo with its famous warrior queen Nzinga. Yet another person, I really don't think y'all should romanticize. She was pretty awful. And she also got rich off the slave trade. Although the slave trade made Congo, Ndongo, Oyo, and Dahomey all initially wealthy, One by one by one, the Europeans were able to monopolize on the slave trade and make slave trading downfall of these kingdoms. It's like Rastaman say, money is Babylon, and if you let it, it will consume you. Next episode, I'll be getting back to lighter subject matters as I discuss pre-colonial African learning systems, including writing systems, mathematics, astronomy, and even midwifery. Join me next time for more Musings on History.